You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about acne. Acne is a common skin condition in children impacting an estimated 80% of teens. While many teens will have mild symptoms, some may experience hyperpigmentation, scarring, and negative psychosocial effects, which highlights the importance of recognizing and treating this condition. Helping us review and update our knowledge of acne is Dr. Amanda Shepard-Hayes, a pediatrician specializing in dermatology at CHOP. Welcome, Dr. Shepard-Hayes. Thank you for having me, Dr. Lockwood. It's a pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you. So let's start by talking about how comedones develop in the first place, because that might help us better understand prevention and treatment. So I love that you asked this question first. It's helpful not only for physicians, but also for their patients to understand the problem that we're treating so that they know how to use the medications and why we use them and what to do to use them successfully. So the comedo is the primary lesion in acne development. It's caused by a keratin plug of the pilosebaceous unit, and the keratin plug develops from hyperproliferation and abnormal differentiation of keratinocytes. We know that androgens, changes in lipid composition, and abnormal cytokine response are all thought to be important in this change in the keratinocytes. So we know that acne begins when sebum production increases at the beginning of puberty. As these retained cells block the follicular opening, the lower portion of the follicle dilates by the entrapped sebum, There's disruption of the follicular epithelium and contents erupt into the dermis. The combination of this keratin, sebum, and bacteria, most importantly P-acne, leads to the release of pro-inflammatory mediators that recruit inflammatory cells, and that's what causes the formation of the papules, pustules, and nodules that you see in acne. So all of that to say, I counsel my patients who have acne by telling them the reason you have your acne is that there's changes in your hormones when you go through puberty, and this affects the way that your skin works. Your skin's supposed to be constantly maturing and flaking off, and those hormonal changes make your dead skin sticky and not shed appropriately. That dead skin clogs your pores, and then those fill up with more dead skin, with oil and bacteria, and your body creates inflammation to this to try to get rid of the problem. So to treat your acne, we need to combat all of those factors. That was a great review of the pathophysiology, and you mentioned a number of things like hormones and oils, but there are a number of proposed associated factors that contribute to acne, so help us determine which of these are true and which are myth. So first, are there certain skincare practices that cause or worsen acne? I'm thinking of things like scrubbing your face or washing too much. This is absolutely true. So we know that mechanical and frictional forces can exacerbate acne. If you think about a patient who plays a sport where they wear a chin strap or something, oftentimes you'll see that their acne is much worse on their chin area. And I find that swimmers who wear caps tend to have more prominent acne on their foreheads. So this frictional principle is true in over-exuberant washing as well. In addition, this can irritate the skin, can strip it of its moisture, and that disrupts the barrier function of your skin and can encourage more sebum production. So we don't actually have evidence that keeping your skin clean and washing an X number of times a day prevents the development of acne. It's more for like the feeling of the oil and the dirt and things that's on your skin that we want patients to wash, but not too exuberantly. 
Good to know. So second, what is the impact of diet on acne? I've heard associations with dairy, greasy foods, and chocolate. Are any of these things things that should be avoided if someone is prone to acne? We do have some moderate links between two dietary influences in acne. That's a diet that has a lot of low-fat dairy and also a diet that has a high glycemic index. So that might be where the chocolate myth comes from. I shouldn't say myth, the chocolate rumor comes from. We don't know yet how to use this information though as a therapeutic intervention, but I just encourage patients who have acne, especially inflammatory acne, to have a healthy diet. And if they're going to drink a glass of milk to go for the 2% or higher, and just to have a healthy diet overall that doesn't have a lot of sugars added into it. Great tips for anyone. So our last myth is, does stress impact acne? There is some association, but this is just a really hard problem to study. So we don't have great answers for it. But there are some small studies that show that when patients are going through greater periods of stress, especially young men, that their acne may worsen. So we know that hormones play a role in acne, as you mentioned, and this is highlighted by the acne that we see so commonly in PCOS. So what role do androgens and insulin resistance play in acne? So androgens and insulin resistance really influence each other. Insulin resistance may stimulate increased androgen production and increased levels of IGF-1, which can increase facial sebum production. Obesity alone isn't a cause of acne, but a factor to consider in a lot of patients who may have other signs of hyperandrogenism, like hirsutism, irregular menses, acanthosis nigricans, and androgenic alopecia. Thank you so much for reviewing all of that pathophysiology. Let's move on a little bit to our exam. So we should be looking at the types of lesions, the distribution, signs of hyperandrogenism, and scarring or hyperpigmentation. I think we're all comfortable identifying acne, but what are some of the features on exam that should raise a concern that perhaps we're not dealing with just routine acne? So all those signs that I just mentioned of hyperandrogenism are important to consider on your exam. So hirsutism, which is abnormal hair growth or increased hair growth, especially in women, irregular menses. If you see acanthosis nigricans, which is this velvety hyperpigmented plaque on the posterior neck, and then a pattern of alopecia that's almost like male pattern baldness. Those are all signs of PCOS as well. The other things that you can look for on exam are things like monomorphic eruptions. So that's not really routine of acne. There should be some variety or different stages of the lesions, and there are always comedones. What I'm thinking about when I mention the monomorphic eruptions and the lack of comedones are things like steroid-induced acne and also periorofacial dermatitis, which have different treatments than acne vulgaris. The other two things that I look for on exam are acne that's not in a typical acne vulgaris distribution. So if it's in the axillae or the groin or only or much more severely affecting the back of the neck. And then also acne that starts in ages between one and seven is not normal. And so you should look for other signs of puberty for them. That would be hair growing in their axillae or their pubic region, breast bud development, enlarging genitalia, body odor. And then I always take a peek at their growth chart also to see if they're having rapid growth or weight gain. And these are all um, reasons to send children for further evaluation. And due to the psychosocial effects and the potential for complications, I often tend to treat mild acne. So what should be our first step in these mild cases? We have some really nice guidelines for treating acne that are published in pediatrics by Dr. Eichenfield and CHOP's own Dr. Yan, and then also in Peds and Review, as well as the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology by Dr. Zangline that have all come out since 2016 or more recent. 
And so the most important part of treating acne, even in the mild cases, is the comedone formation. So I mentioned that that follicular plugging is really the root cause of all acne. And so using a comedolytic like benzoyl peroxide is helpful, but is typically a little bit better for more inflammatory acne. And inflammatory acne can be mild as well. So that's one option. But I think a more effective medicine is a topical retinoid. So the retinoids work by promoting normal desquamation of the follicular epithelium, and they're also anti-inflammatory, so they're good for all patients with acne. But in general, even for mild acne, combination therapy is recommended. My favorite starting regimen is a low-strength benzoyl peroxide-containing wash, something that has between 25 and 5% concentration, and then a retinoid as well, something maybe like tretinoin 0.025% cream. And I counsel patients to use the benzoyl peroxide wash in the morning and the tretinoin or other retinoid at night. And that's because some retinoids aren't photostable, so can't be exposed to the sun or they stop working. And benzoyl peroxide can also inactivate retinoids. And so I like to separate them out in the day. Counseling is also really important here. So like I mentioned, when to use the medicines, how to use them. Almost all patients will get some dryness or irritation by using these medicines. And so I like to tell them to start slow and then ramp up. So using the medicines every other day for the first one to two weeks can make them more tolerable before you increase them to every single day. And then just letting patients know that it's really normal to get that dryness. If they continue to use the medicines, particularly the retinoids, that dryness does get better with time. That's a great starting point. And I love using benzoyl peroxide and topical retinoids for most patients because, as you mentioned, it will work for most. But what about when acne is more moderate or it's failed that initial treatment? So I'm thinking things like when there's more inflammation, nodules, or more diffusely located lesions. So how can we escalate our treatment? The nice thing about the retinoids is that they're pretty low-risk medications. So I mentioned that they can lead to some dryness and irritation. They also photosensitize you, so make you more likely to get a sunburn. But that's pretty much it, aside from um, some theoretical risk of issues when patients are pregnant, but shouldn't be a huge problem for pediatricians. So I think that pediatricians should feel comfortable to increase the strength of their retinoid if there's been some response but not clearance with a lower strength. And so oftentimes they'll escalate to tretinoin 0.05% cream or 0.1%. You can use these medicines also on acne that's on the chest and back, just as an aside. And then if patients present with moderate or severe acne, I think that it's completely reasonable to use an antibiotic for them. So using a topical or an oral antibiotic is also helpful in moderate to severe acne and can also be used to escalate therapy for people who aren't responding to benzoyl peroxide and a topical retinoid. A tetracycline like doxycycline or minocycline are typically my go-tos for oral medications. These are antibacterial and anti-inflammatory. In general, doxycycline has a lower side effect profile, so in most cases I'll use that as my first choice of an oral antibiotic. And in an adult-sized person, I'll usually use 100 milligrams twice a day. But you should never use an oral antibiotic alone. I always counsel patients that we're only going to leave them on the oral antibiotic for about three to four months, and they need to be using it in combination with a topical retinoid to prevent the comedone formation in the first place. If we prevent the comedones, there's no issue with bacteria or inflammation, and so they don't need to take the oral antibiotic anymore, and they don't have to risk the systemic side effects that can come with that. When I'm using a topical antibiotic, I typically don't use that and an oral because there might be some increased chance of developing antibiotic resistance. But the topical ones that are really commonly used are clindamycin and erythromycin. 
The last medication that I want to put in a plug for is oral contraceptive pills, especially in women who have moderate or severe acne and have premenstrual flares or acne that's more predominant on their lower face. The oral contraceptive pills can be beneficial in women even who don't have abnormal laboratory tests. So medicines that have a newer progestin formulation like orthotricycline, Yasmin, Biaz, and Aless are all examples. Some dermatologists actually feel more comfortable with the PCP prescribing these medications in kids, especially if there are other conditions that it might be helpful for, like dysmenorrhea. And so I want pediatricians to feel empowered to use them for acne as well. That's great. There were so many options that you mentioned. And the thing that I liked is that those are all things that we can do in primary care. So that feels very empowering that we can take care of even some of these more moderate to severe cases of acne. Oh, absolutely. And I think that most pediatricians are really good at treating acne, especially following these guidelines where we start with the benzoyl peroxide and the retinoid. But I often see patients getting referred if they fail kind of that first line step. But these medicines in general are low risk and they're medicines that pediatricians use for other indications. And so know the side effect profile really well. And I think that they should totally feel empowered to use them for acne as an indication as well. Acne-induced post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation is more common in people of color who have more highly pigmented skin. So how should our treatment approach help minimize this potential complication? Such an important question to ask. The good news is that the medications that treat the keratinocyte hyperproliferation also make post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation improve more quickly. I'm going to call post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation PIH um, just for ease of speaking. (laughs) And so using something like a retinoid or a more gentle medicine like azelaic acid, which can be found over the counter, will do a double duty. It's a myth also that people with darker skin tones don't need sunscreen. The sun contributes to the development of PIH. And so all patients with acne should be counseled to use sunscreen. This opens up a whole nother issue, though, because many sunscreens leave a white or a purplish cast on dark skin, which obviously is not cosmetically desired for patients. And so letting patients know that there are sunscreens that are formulated for darker skin tones. I don't want to put in a plug for specific products, but one in particular is called Black Girl Sunscreen. Another is Neutrogena Hydro Boost Water Gel Sunscreen that really sink into the skin a little bit better and don't leave that film on darker skin tones. Great tips to avoid PIH, as you mentioned. Now. During the pandemic, I heard a new word, maskne. So does wearing a face mask trigger acne? And if so, is there a way to avoid this? It can definitely trigger acne. We think that it has something to do with the frictional principle that I mentioned earlier. But using a medication that promotes appropriate skin shedding should treat this acne just like any other form of acne. And so really going back to those same therapies, the topical retinoids will be helpful for maskne as well. Great. I've been telling patients to make sure that their masks are clean too, which is good in terms of preventing COVID, but also maskne. If you wash your mask, um, you know, as you should with detergent or soap and water, then you're going to get some of that oil and those skin cells and things that you shed throughout the day off of your mask and start fresh the next day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I like to tell patients to either use a disposable mask, which isn't great for the environment, or like you said, to just wash their masks frequently, even just having a few masks and then washing them at the end of the week. So you're not using a mask more than one day in a row. Right. So what expectations should we set for our patients in terms of how much improvement they should see when they're treating their acne and when will their acne go away? Oh, no one likes the answer to this question when I tell them, (laughs) but we should think of acne as a chronic disease of adolescence. And the goal is to control it, not necessarily 100% cure it. So we really want to prevent scarring and make patients feel as good about their appearance as possible. 
I think of acne as not only treating something that you can see, but also kind of treating their souls. But not everyone gets 100% improvement, like I said. At least a 50% reduction in lesions is considered treatment success in research, but that might not feel like success to a patient. And all acne treatments are preventative. So you need a full skin cycle turnover before you see improvement, which is a minimum of eight weeks. And usually we like to reassess patients at 12 week intervals to see if their skin is responding to the regimen that we've prescribed. I also wanna highlight that because the medications are preventative, they need to be used on the entire area that tends to get acne, not just current lesions, which is something I like to also counsel my patients on. PIH takes even longer to improve, but using a retinoid will continue to speed that process along. The prevention aspect here, I think, is so important, as you mentioned, because many patients will be really good about using their treatment when they have acne. And then when things seem to clear up, they stop using their treatment. And then Mm -hmm. guess what happens, (laughs) right? (laughs) Yes, it's this whole cycle. So um, the prevention is really key. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's great. So as we mentioned, we're comfortable managing acne in primary care, but when should we consider a referral to a dermatologist? If someone is having complications of their acne, so if they're having scarring, and that's not just PIH, scarring is actual like atrophic areas or those ice pick scars that you often see. You might worry that you need oral isotretinoin then, and that's when I would refer to a dermatologist. And when you're referring, it's always appropriate to start therapy with a combination regimen that includes a topical retinoid and a systemic medicine, whether that be an antibiotic or an oral contraceptive pill. Also, acne that doesn't respond to a first-line retinoid or increase in strength of the retinoid is appropriate referral. I also want to empower pediatricians to work up hyperandrogenism, but Derm is happy to see these patients as is endocrinology. Any acne that's in a one to seven-year-old is normal and should be at least worked up, but Derm is happy to see these patients as well. Acne that's in an abnormal location, so at the nape of the neck, in the underarms, or in the groin, you're probably not dealing with just garden variety acne vulgaris, and I would refer those patients to dermatology. And then I also just want to put in a plug, um, an alternative to referring patients into the derm office is using something like 1-800-TRI-CHOP to speak directly to one of the dermatologists or the dermatology fellows. And if you're a CHOP PCP, you can have your patients do an Acne Express e-visit before they see derm. It's $50, so it's not affordable for everyone. But if you as their pediatrician has tried a first-line medicine, or I should say first-line medications, because treating acne is almost always combination therapy, and the patient isn't responding, it's a nice way to get dermatology recommendations quickly before they're actually seen in the office and may actually prevent them from needing to come into the dermatology office. Thank you so much for clarifying all the ways that we can find you, but also empowering us to do so much of this in primary care. It seems like such a simple topic, but as we mentioned, can have a real chronic pattern as well as many psychosocial implications for our patients, which is why it's so important that we really think carefully about diagnosing and treating acne in our patients. So thank you for that update. Of course, it was so much fun to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 